Welcome to Four Questions Four, a podcast by Osgood Hall Law School presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Nye Thomas, Executive Director of the Law Commission of Ontario, will have four questions for Osgood alumni Carol Peel-Wiesen of INQ Data Law on the topic of artificial intelligence and its ramifications for lawyers and the practice of law. Carol Peel-Wiesen is a partner and co-founder of Inc. Data Law, where she focuses on data governance, privacy law, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence. She's also advised the Canadian government on legal and policy issues related to AI and regularly advises companies on matters involving their collection, storage, and use of personal information. Carol, it's great to talk to you today. Thank you. Um, I think the last time we saw each other was a couple of months ago at an event that the commission organized with Element AI, doing a bit of a primer on AI for lawyers. And at the time, you gave a great kind of summary and introduction to what AI is. So question one is, What is AI? So there really is no consensus definition of what AI is. And that's because there is no, it is not one thing. So in some sense, AI is sort of aspirational. It is what we hope and what we would like computer systems to be able to do. Uh, And in that sense, you're looking at sort of the general applicability of a machine to do more sophisticated things. But there is one definition that I really like that comes out of the MIT Technology Review by Karen Howe uh, in her November 2018 article, where she defines it as computer systems that can learn, reason, and act for themselves. They can make their own decisions when faced with new situations in the same way that humans and animals can. And the reason I like this definition is because it cuts to the heart of what the aspiration is. And the original aspiration was defined by Dr. Alan Turing in his 1950s uh, thesis that really questioned, can machines think? And it's that question that has got us over the last, you know, five, six decades to to determine the degree to which machines can be sophisticated and think like humans. But let's just break this down for a second. Like, what does it mean for a machine to think? And what does it mean today? What does it look like today? So today, if you take various applications of AI, you have, for example, the ability to process and analyze text and speech. Now that's really complicated. You'll often hear it referred to as natural language processing. And it is the ability to see words in a text and make meaning of it, or hear words spoken and make meaning of it. Identify the word correctly, put the word together in a sentence, and make meaning of that sentence. And so the example I always give as to why this is so complicated and why these machines, when they can do it right, are so amazing, is my six-year-old son who, when faced with my sarcastic, you know, uh, uh, sentence where I'll say to him, you know, oh, Max, that's great. And he'll look at me and say, mommy, is that the great that's good or the great that's bad? And the thing is, he's right, because depending on my intonation, I might mean different things because language is so complicated. 
And then you take uh, another application of AI, which is image recognition. So that is the ability to correctly label images and objects in our world. And we take this for granted as we go through our day because we have been born to, we've sort of been trained since birth to understand and, and label the world around us. But machines are now being trained to correctly identify that this round object is a circle. The object with two legs is a ta the round object with two legs is a table. And that's very, very complicated, but it's being used in applications like self-driving cars, for instance, to make sense of the world around it. So that is sort of the broad definition of what is AI. But what I really love about how it's come into the mainstream is that you get various perspectives on what is AI from different disciplines. So we've got some great, from the um, world of The Economist, we've got some great definitions through um, some of our own Canadian academics, Joshua Gans, Avi Goldfarb, Ajay Agarwal in their book, Predictive Machines, where they really talk about AI as a means for cheaper prediction. And from an economist perspective, as you take the large data sets and huge amounts of information and you turn it into a valuable and cheaper and more accurate prediction, the, the cheaper it is, the more we will use this system and so we can see the economic imperative around the artificial intelligence system. But let me bring it to our own profession. So in law, the way I think about artificial intelligence and what makes it so unique at law is that it is a computer system, so an inorganic system, that analyzes a massive amount of data. It learns from the analysis and takes action in unconventional ways with remote human involvement. So let me break that down for a sec. Because why that is interesting at law is that, number one, you're talking about the analysis of a huge amount of massive amounts of data. So you're looking at what is the nature of that data? Is it personal information? Is it, uh, is it not? Is it just other maybe geolocation data or um, uh, spatial data? It might be completely, uh, it might be data that is absolutely not personal. So you're looking at a huge amount of data that's being analyzed. You're looking at an inorganic system so it is not a human, it is not an animal, it is a computer system. And you are looking at its ability to act independently and evolve over time independently. And so the relationship between the human creator and the actions of that system become remote, increasingly remote over time, which makes it a really interesting legal issue as the system becomes more sophisticated because really the law is there to govern us as humans. It's not properly set up to govern these inorganic systems as they act. Let me just ask you a follow-up question on, on the definition because in uh, the field and in the media we often hear about um, algorithms. We hear about deep learning. We hear about machine learning. We hear about neural networks. Are these artificial intelligence? Are these one and the same thing? Are they steps on a ladder? Like how do we, how should we try to pull apart or understand these different descriptions of what, what seem to be similar, te similar technology? Yeah, so they're not the same thing. So deep learning, machine learning are different things. The artificial neural network is the infrastructure of the deep learning system. Uh, and machine learning is more rules-based, but still has its independent um, processing to achieve a specific outcome for which it has been 
uh, identified for. So they are different components under the AI umbrella is how I would put it. Similar to natural language processing, which would fall under that umbrella, uh, image recognition, which would fall under that umbrella, uh, certain aspects of robotics. So not all robotics, but certainly certain aspects would fall under that umbrella as well. Got it. Okay. Well, let's get back to the justice system. And it's been said that uh, AI is going to affect everything that we do in all fields. And obviously, as you know, as lawyers, if this affects us as well. This leads me to question number two, which is about the implications of AI in the justice system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's here to some extent. It appears to be growing. Can you talk about, uh, from your perspective, you know, where AI uh, systems are being used now in the justice system, either in Canada or elsewhere, and where some of the applications may be, may be coming in the future. Yeah, so AI is a general application technology, and this means that it can be used in any sector, in any industry, across any vertical, at any stage. And the reason, again, is because what you're doing with this AI system is you are taking human processes and you are effectively automating many of these processes, but in a smart and self-directed way. So absolutely, we see artificial intelligence being used in our legal practice and, and in the justice system specifically. So let's start with how is it being used in the legal practice. We have some great examples here in Canada of where natural language processing, so again, that ability to understand, interpret, make sense of text, is being used in various applications to help with case law analysis, for instance. So where you have a specific legal issue that does not does, is is relatively binary in its analysis meaning you don't have 15 different variables that need to be considered per se it's a legal question that has a few clear criteria or elements to the determination of that question you can today do great case law analysis on the extent to which your case may fall within a test or not. And a great example of this is from Blue Jay Legal, a Toronto-based AI company that is looking at questions around um, independent contractor versus employee. And they're doing this in the context of sort of tax litigation to assist lawyers and, and more and others clearly identify the extent to which their fact scenario is likely to fall on the side of the employee determination or independent contractor determination. So that's a great example of where it's being used in the litigation context. Um, because AI is so successful at analyzing massive amounts of data and deriving meaning from that data, really valuable meaning, identifying trends, clustering the data so that you've got it in various categories, really making sense of it in a useful way. It's also being used in the due diligence context today. So we have examples of systems that are being used by law firms, they are being used by government to help, help um, analyze huge volumes of paper to make sense of and to inform various categories in the due diligence process. And to some extent, that same process is, is um, also replicated in the e-discovery context, where you've got more sophisticated predictive systems that are assisting with the determination or the classification of documents. Uh, again, our litigation now, it they, uh, we have huge document flow. So we've got, it's no longer the case where a piece of litigation will involve 15 
a production of 15 documents. It's usually a production of hundreds of thousands or millions of documents. I have heard of productions of a billion documents. So uh, it's our, our the the document flow in our litigation context today is very, very different. It's very time intensive. But you've got these great tools that can analyze systems for particular determinations um, and help classify and categorize those systems to reduce the number of documents that actually require human review. So those are two great examples. They are happening here and now. They are already in use. Increasingly, what we see is take the practice management side. We see uh, law firms that are really piqued in interest to understand you know, when they do a fixed fee arrangement, for instance, if you look historically at cases or uh, transactions of a particular nature, you know, how much, how long did the transa transaction typically take or how long did the case typically take and how much did it actually cost? And if you have enough of that data, you can start to process that data for the purpose of a prediction in terms of how much it would cost in the future so that your fixed fee can be more accurate. Um, and it's not so much a shot in the dark or a bunch of the partners sitting around saying, well, I think we spent about X amount on, on this. But you can actually be quite specific about how long in general, what the trend is with respect to various transactions or cases. And so it's being used in the practice management context as well. And that's just one example. Uh, but you also asked me about the justice system. So we, where we see artificial intelligence being used in the justice system is uh, I would say primarily in the US right now. We haven't seen it come to Canada quite the same way. Um, and we see it in uh, one specific example that is often talked about. We start to see it a little bit more in another example. So the first example is uh, in the sort of risk assessment associated with a, a particular defendant or an accused, depending on the context. and. Um, uh, the the determination as to whether this defendant should be eligible for bail uh, or if they have been convicted, whether they should be eligible for parole or what their sentencing should be. So it is a system that analyzes group and individual data together to give a risk prediction on the risk of recidivism of a particular individual. And the way it's being used in courts is that risk classification then helps to inform a judge as to whether or not this individual should be granted bail, should be given a longer or shorter sentence, um, or should be granted parole. They are tools, and the court in the US, so the, the Wisconsin Court of Appeal in particular, has been very clear that this is a tool in a judge's toolbox. But I would say it's a very persuasive tool. And it's a tool that is not properly understood. Uh, judges are not trained on the frailties of the tool and whether actual or potential, they need to understand the full scope of the tool. And so it is a highly controversial <clears throat> use of the tool. Um, but it's also when judged against human bias and, and human determinations of length of sentence or likelihood of reoffense uh, has been found in some studies to be akin. That actually brings me to question number three, which is about the legal implications of the, the use of the technology. And the criminal example is a, is a particularly apt uh, 
demonstration of where the legal challenges arise. Like I can imagine, uh, for example, there are questions around legal liability. If an AI system is doing a, uh, making a recommendation around a sentence, for example, who's legally responsible for that decision? Right. Can you get to see the code? There are due process questions, there are evidentiary questions, there are appeal questions, there's whole issue around legal explainability, which yep. is a topic I know you're, you're quite familiar with. Yeah. So can you talk about some of the uh, the ways the law has adapt or may have to adapt um, as the technology becomes more widespread and we begin to bump into its uh, its implications you know, uh, across the system? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and I, let me approach it this way. Uh, let's break down the AI life cycle and talk about where there are legal implications across the life cycle. So go back to the definition that it is a, a computer system that processes massive amounts of data. I, I typically break down the AI life cycle into three buckets. Uh, and it helps me think about where there are legal issues that will need to be addressed today that do need to be addressed today and that will be will certainly need to be addressed as we go forward and these systems become much more commercially used. So the first bucket has to do with the inputs and that is the massive amount of data that's being processed. The second bucket has to do with the creation of the system and its training. And the third bucket has to do with the operationalization of that system and its sort of interaction with the public, depending on the use of the system, the particular use case. So those are the three buckets. Let's go to the first. The first bucket, really, from my perspective, it involves legal issues to do with data, so privacy and cybersecurity. But it's also at this stage where you're starting to think about some of the ethical implications of the AI system and your data in particular. The processing of huge amounts of data is historical in nature because you are taking data that exists and you are processing it for the purpose of a future prediction. And you want to account for that as you think through the ethical implications of the data that you have. So if you are looking at a particular topic and you're processing that data for the last 10 years on that particular topic, then you want to be mindful that the past that the future may not, you may not want the future to reflect your past. You want to be mindful of any discrepancies in the data, if it's very heavy, heavily skewed in favor of one group or against one group, you'll want to do that analysis right up front in that first bucket. The other issue you'll want to be thinking about in this first bucket is the degree to which there will need to be explainability down the line. So. In some AI systems, and deep learning systems are a great example, where you're, you're essentially using the infrastructure of, you know, it's modeled, the infrastructure of a deep learning system is modeled off the human brain. You've got these nodes that are processing information, processing data points, and we do not understand how they do what they do. Uh, and we can't understand that. So to the extent that you are going to be using a more sophisticated AI system like a deep learning system in a, in a sensitive context or a context involving legal rights or similarly situated legal rights. For example, the determination of credit and should you, whether somebody should, be, should have access to credit or not. You will want to be thinking about that from the outset. You will want to be thinking about the extent to which this system needs to be explainable to whom and how. That's your bucket one. Your bucket two has to do with uh, the, the creation of the system. And really what you're doing here is you're engaging questions around IP rights, IP protections, 
uh, IP joint ownership or single ownership and how that ownership ex um, may change over time. And you're thinking about really contracting. You're thinking about the uh, third-party vendor who may be selling you the AI system and what your relationship will look with that look like with that vendor over time. Um, and you're also thinking about the extent to which uh, you will have particular terms in your uh, contracts that will help and that will evolve as the relationship evolves and that will help to create some certainty and and management of risk around what the various um, relationships with the third party will look like in particular or with whomever you're contracting with. Uh, the third, your fourth, your, sorry, your third bucket has to do with the deployment of the technology, the operationalization of that technology. And when you're in this third bucket, you are thinking about the auditing of your your AI. So, is it performing the way we thought it would? Has it evolved in a way we didn't expect? Are we using it the way we intended to be using it to avoid issues fundamentally of liability? And so, it's in this third bucket when you are. Um, you are using the AI system in in some cases as it interacts with some of your, your customers or your clients or whoever it may be. It's really at that stage where you're conscious of whether the AI is doing something that you hadn't intended. And are you monitoring it sufficiently? I mean, and for the, the legal system and for governments and for litigators and for courts, there's the very live question as to whether or not our current legal principles, due process, human rights, uh, constitutional law, are sufficient yep. to address these issues as they arise. For example, um, uh, you know the example you talked about regarding bail and sentencing. Very serious questions have been uh, raised in the United States. First applications of it. It's yep. important to note the first applications of it around bias, discrimination. Bias in, bias out is the phrase that's often kicked around. And the question for lawyers and for the justice system is whether or not our existing principles are sufficient to adapt to these new technologies um, or if new regulation in some form is, is, uh, is necessary or not. And that's presumably um, an ongoing discussion. It is. It is. But we already see where the we, we can already see where the, the sort of tide is, is shifting or where the trend is going, because we see when the new uh, European commissioner came in, she said in her first hundred days, she will she will push through AI regulation. And where she focused primarily was around transparency, for instance. In the U.S., we've seen a bill that was I mean, it was a Senate bill by a Democratic senator, so it's unlikely to see the light of day. But nevertheless, it was interesting that it was around an algorithmic accountability bill. It was called the Algorithmic Accountability Act, and the purpose of the bill was to uh, require a, an algorithmic impact assessment effectively for any company over a certain threshold. And to me, that is a clear indication of where we can see there being substantial concern such that we will see new regulation. Yeah. I expect we're going to see that here as well. Yeah. And there's a good example in the federal government with its uh, new AI exactly. Treasury Board Directive, which is, at least so far as I can tell, in fact, a you know best-in-class model for how you uh, government should respond to these systems. It talks about disclosure, talks about uh, notice, talks about opportunity to... to 
uh, you know, understand your decisions and things like that. It seems seems pretty good so far as these things go. Yeah, it's a great example because so not only do you have the directive, but you have the compendium algorithmic impact assessment that has been the government's initiative to think through where you're in a category of risk four. So they break down the three, four categories of risk. Once you're in risk four, you are more conscious of, and in fact, in risk in category four, you need to have a human involved in in the process, you need to have a human intercept between the sort of output of the AI system and a communication of a decision. And that's really, when you think about it, that's really to take responsibility and to account for potential liability associated with the output of that decision. The issue, however, is that you need, as as the human who is involved, as the human who is serving as that uh, intermediary point, you need to understand how to interpret you need to understand the system and what the output is telling you in order to play a meaningful role in the process. Yeah. That brings me to question number four, and I'm just unconscious of time. What advice would you give to people who may be uncertain or wary of the technology and who are just beginning to learn about it um, and its potential? Where, what should they do? How should they either educate themselves or, or prepare? What's your advice? So this technology is a tool, and I would say there's no need to be wary of the tool. It is a powerful tool. It's an exciting tool. It's one that we have to be mindful of. We cannot walk in with eyes closed. But it is a technological tool, which in and of itself, as a sort of high-level concept, is not new. So what do you do? If you are a practicing lawyer uh, or someone just generally interested in the law and technology, my advice is start to read about what makes this technology unique and think about what makes this technology interesting to your clients in your practice. Really start to unpack because it's going to take time, first of all, for the technology to become widely used. I would give it another you know, three to five years before we can see broader application of AI technology. We see a lot of it today, but we'll see much more in the next three to five years. And when we talk about an AI first world, I mean, that's what we're barreling towards, and it's, it's, but we're not there yet. So start to learn about the technology and think about where it fits in with your own practice. If you're in-house uh, or working for a, a company, I would say this technology is has a real commercial imperative. It really does serve as a competitive advantage to companies that are starting to experiment today. It is not simple. It will take investment and it takes a lot of experimentation. But to get started today means that you're well prepared for three to five years when you can actually start to see a return on some of your investment. But there are actual risks associating, associated with the technology. So one thing that uh, w what we do at, at Inc. Data Law with some of our clients, we help them think through and plan out where there are the risks and how to account for those risks, so how to mitigate the risks. And we typically break it down into four buckets. Again, I'm, I'm sort of big on buckets, but we break it down to four. Uh, the first, really looking at what is the value? So why are you using this technology? Who has it been communicated to within the organization? How is it different from any other technology? How does it serve the best interests of the corporation? And how does it align with brand? Thinking about what are some of the reputational risks? And how do you really justify the decisions you've made in using more 
more sophisticated technology. The second is around trustworthiness. So have you done your due diligence to think about the ethics? Have you asked yourself the questions about what data do we have? Why do we have it? What do we want to do with it? Um, have you planned out a communication strategy, both internally and externally, around what you're going to be, how you're going to be using that the technology, and what makes it unique? And have you really thought about some of the foreseeable harms and planned for those foreseeable harms? The third being security. Uh, that's in part data security. So. Obviously, are you compliant with cybersecurity regulations, and are you are you um, securing your data in a way that is appropriate given the data that you're holding? But there's also security around the system. Like, are you using the data? Have you thought about what uh, the use cases are for this particular technology, and have you planned certain controls around that so that you will use the data as in, sorry use the technology as intended? And then that really takes us to the third, the, the fourth bucket, which is controls. Uh, have you thought through what your monitoring and auditing structure will look like? And have you put in place appropriate controls to ensure that only those who need to have access to the technology do, that there is a human involved where required, that you have thought through the various risks mechanisms or risk um, levels of the technology, and you have planned accordingly, and you've got that all documented as part of a plan and as part of a strategy for its use. So. To me, it's about learning what the technology is, learning why it's valuable, understanding where there are actual risks, and starting to plan accordingly. That sounds like a good place to, to finish. Carol, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Four Questions Four by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>